0: WKNC 88.1 FM The
1: Revolution. Welcome to the August 30th edition of Eye on the Triangle. I am your host, Chris Chaffee. This week we will have a show filled with reactions about the earthquake, a story about Ramadan, and a brief history of one of the most infamous buildings on campus. We also have weather, sports, and this week in history. We'll start with Matt Gardner and the news.
2: An end to the ground battle in Libya is in sight as rebel forces close in on the town of Sirte the hometown of Muammar Gaddafi, and one of his last bastions of support in the war-torn nation. Rebels are prepared to strike from both east and west of the coastal city in an attempt to neutralize the forces loyal to the embattled dictator. NATO has increased its efforts in Sirte in the past 48 hours, so rebels are holding back. In related news, the UN's post-Gaddafi plan has been leaked. The plan calls for UN-assisted elections occurring at some point in the next six to nine months. The biggest part of the plan is the section that calls for an interim UN government ahead of the polls. According to the plan, the interim government will be comprised of 61 civilian staff members at offices in Benghazi and Tripoli. 29 people are dead after a suicide bomb exploded in an Iraq mosque. The bomber, who disguised himself as a beggar for nearly a week to gain interest into the mosque, detonated himself inside Baghdad's largest Sunni mosque. The attack came during a prayer at a special service for the Muslim holy month of Ramadan and appeared to be a calculated attempt to reignite widespread violence in Iraq just months before U.S. troops are slated for a full withdrawal. In technology news, UCLA engineers have created a fully stretchable OLED. The OLED, which stands for Organic Light Emitting Diode, was created when the researchers devised a way of creating a carbon nanotube and polymer electrode and layering it into a stretchable light-emitting plastic. Real world applications for this technology could be a cell phone that you could roll up and tuck into your pocket, or a phone that could swell or shrink. Scientists have discovered a novel bacteria that can create the biofuel butanol by synthesizing organic material. The bacteria, called TU103 by the researchers, can use cellulose found in all papers to create the biofuel. This has serious implications, as the scientists claim that nearly 323 million tons of cellulosic material are thrown out each year, which in the future could be used to produce the biofuel. The nation begins to rebuild in the wake of Hurricane Irene. The East Coast was plagued by widespread flooding, downed trees, and power outages as the storm made its way up the coast. Still though, Irene was deadly. Nineteen people were killed in various storm-related accidents from Florida to Connecticut. One man was killed in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, when a tree fell on his tent. In North Carolina alone, nearly 200 people were rescued by swiftwater rescue teams from their homes after they were overtaken by floodwater. In lighter news, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has declared war on the bikini. Sunbathing in Alexandria could soon be a thing of the past if the Islamic politicians have their way. Beach tourism must take the values and norms of our society into account, Muhammad Saeed Al Katani declared. Ali Kafagi, the youth director of Freedom and Justice in Giza, told the media. Bathing suits and mixing on the beach are things that go against our tradition. It's not just a matter of religion. When I go to the beach, I don't want to see nudity. And finally, in soccer news, the biggest headline from this past weekend's action is Manchester United's routing of Arsenal in a convincing 8-2 win. Arsenal's backline wasn't enough to stop the likes of Wellback, young Nani and Park with Rooney netting a hat trick. There's still more to celebrate in Manchester as Manchester City defeat Tottenham 5-1. Dijekko scoring an incredible four goals, and Sergio Aguero scoring one. Chelsea defeated Norwich City 3-1, with a terrifying scene as Didier Drogba being knocked out from the challenge from Norwich's goalkeeper and lying unmoving on the pitch for nearly five minutes. Other relevant English Premier League scores: Liverpool defeats Bolton 3-1, and Newcastle United continue to defy critics' expectations by defeating Fulham 2-1. In Spanish La Liga action, Barcelona defeat Villarreal 5-0 and Real Madrid crush Real Zaragoza 6-0. For Eye on the Triangle News, I'm Matt Gardner.
1: Now let's talk weather with NC State meteorologist zone Katie Costa. Katie, it seems we had quite a busy week here in the Piedmont and beyond.
3: Yes, we certainly did, Chris, especially this past weekend. Hurricane Irene definitely brought some interesting weather to the triangle. Significant winds and downpours definitely was a predominant feature this past weekend. And now just a quick recap on Irene. Originally, forecasters from the NHC, the National Hurricane Center, predicted Hurricane Irene to make landfall as a Category 3. But forecasters significantly overestimated the strength of the storm. By the time Irene made landfall, it had weakened to a Category 1. According to CNN's news blog from today, It is better that hurricane forecasters over-predicted Irene's strength rather than under-predicted it, because if the storm had rapidly intensified at the last minute near the coastline, it would have been too late to order large evacuations. Now, the forecast path was accurate since Irene did indeed make landfall at the Outer Banks as originally predicted. However, the impact at which Irene made landfall was not predicted accurately enough. As soon as Irene hit shore, a significant amount of dry air and wind shear weakened the system. After landfall, the storm was never able to regain its strength due to its hard hit to the Outer Banks. NC Highway 12, which runs through the islands of the Outer Banks, faced major damages since the highway was torn apart in four different places. The repair costs will be much more extensive and pricey than back in 2003 when Hurricane Isabel cut a major gap in the highway. Cape Hatteras still is facing a power outage, and a ferry service is the only way of transporting back and forth to the island. According to Jennifer Peltz, a member of the Boston Globe Associated Press, the overall death toll associated with Hurricane Irene across the eastern seaboard has now climbed to a total of 40 deaths. Although the storm turned out to be weaker than expected, it still caused significant damages, power outages, injuries, and deaths. Now that is your recap of Hurricane Irene, and now here is a look at this week's forecast across the triangle. Today, we saw a beautiful sunny day in the mid-80s, and this 80s trend will continue for the rest of this work week. Tonight, we will cool down to 63 degrees, and we do have a slight chance of some patchy showers, so be sure to have an umbrella handy just in case. Wednesday, we will be sunny with a high of 86, and tomorrow night, it will be slightly cooler with a low of 61 and mostly clear skies. Now, Thursday, we will peak to 87 degrees and see sunny skies once again. Thursday evening, we will see partly cloudy skies and a low of 64. Now, we will end the work week on Friday with highs in the upper 80s and mostly sunny skies and lows in the upper 60s. Now, what you've been waiting for, your Labor Day weekend forecast. It looks like Saturday and Sunday are the best days to spend outside this holiday weekend since we will see mostly sunny skies and highs near 90. Now, this weekend is the perfect weekend to hit the lake. Overnight temperatures will stay fairly moderate with temperatures getting down into the upper 60s Saturday and Sunday evenings. Sunday night, showers and storms will begin to move in, though, and it looks like Labor Day is our greatest threat for showers and storms since we are expecting a cold front to move through. Now, this cold front will bring mostly cloudy skies and cooler temperatures to the triangle, with temperatures peaking only into the low 80s. So, Chris, although Labor Day doesn't look good weather-wise, we are going to be seeing perfect tailgate weather for the NC State versus Liberty football game this Saturday.
1: Well, I don't know about you, but I am headed to the lake as we speak, and thanks, Katie.
3: Oh, you're welcome, Chris. Now,
1: last week, as you all know, we all felt the strange sensation of an earthquake under our feet. Now, Nick, Dave, and Jake, our contributors, were there to get the campus reaction and what really happened in our area. I
0: thought, I don't know, though, I was going to die. (laughs) <laughs> it, was, it was kind of violent in my room
3: we were in our dorm and we thought that people were making ruckus above us and below us it scared us it
2: was really surprising
1: me and my roommate were kind of confused we didn't really know what was going on
2: i didn't think much of it i thought it was a bunch
1: of kids running by i did not feel it like i was on the computer and i seen my lamp start shaking
4: uh i was in geology class as a matter of fact the board started shaking we was like it's an earthquake my teacher's like nah it wasn't and he was wrong
1: Last Tuesday, saw the most powerful earthquake to rock
5: the east coast of the United States in almost 70 years. The earthquake was felt by people up and down the eastern seaboard, including many here in Raleigh. We invited Dr. Carl Wegman, a geologist and assistant professor in marine, earth, and atmospheric sciences, into the studio to help us understand what exactly it was we experienced.
0: The earthquake on Tuesday in Virginia was caused when rocks slid past each other along a fault plane. According to Dr. Wegman, the earthquake, which originated
5: several kilometers below the Earth's surface, was felt for thousands of miles because of the unique geologic composition of the eastern coast.
0: The rocks are much older, much denser, much colder on the eastern part of the United States than they are in the in the western part. So seismic energy propagates more efficiently.
5: What this means is that there is often a difference between how far an earthquake can be felt depending on your location within the country. Dr. Wegman explains.
0: So a similar magnitude 5.8 in California might be felt over a distance of 100 miles, whereas here on the east coast of the United States, the same amount of energy release would be felt over maybe 1,000 miles.
5: Which is why last Tuesday's earthquake was reportedly felt from Toronto to Georgia. No need to panic, however. The relative stability of the east coast tectonics means that earthquakes of this magnitude are fairly uncommon.
0: For those of us that are in our 20s or early 30s, if we lived in Raleigh the rest of our life, we may experience one or two more earthquakes of about the same magnitude during our lifetime. And what are the chances the next earthquake will be worse? Uh, what we're not really sure. That's still an area of, of active research for geologists and seismologists on the east coast of the United States. While this may seem
5: unsettling, Dr. Wegman believes that we may in fact have been fortunate to have experienced such an
0: event. It's kind of a neat, almost cultural experience that, that we all got to share in for five seconds. And maybe this earthquake might be a reminder for those of us on the eastern side of the country that we live on a dynamic and an active planet.
5: And while earthquakes in this area aren't common, it's always a good idea to have an emergency plan set up anyway.
0: Worrying about earthquakes should be probably at the bottom of people's list of things to do out here in in North Carolina. Zombie apocalypse might be a little bit higher.
5: However, Dr. Wegman thinks we should worry about the bigger issues at hand.
0: I feel strongly that some of the largest challenges that we face, both as a country, but more broadly as a group of human beings on this planet, are geoscience or earth science-related problems. And we need trained, talented geoscientists to solve some of our country's and humanity's largest looming problems. So come see us over in marine earth and atmospheric sciences.
5: For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Jake Langlois. I'm Dave. And I'm Nick Savage.
4: And the traffic goes round and round, Swallow in the road and spit spitting out clouds. And the spirit she hides on a damp path of moss and stone. From a fear we are born with and never outgrow. And what else you can keep? Your American cash and
1: smile. Yesterday marked the end of Ramadan here in the United States. And over the course of the last month, we've been bringing you a variety of stories about the Holy Islamic Month. As a wrap-up for this year's holiday, our contributor Selma has brought us this piece.
4: Ramadan is a holy month.
6: When Muslims give up food, drink, and all things that are displeasing to God. This is a general idea though. And every Muslim slightly varies in their practices at Ramadan. So I spoke with a fellow Muslim to get a peek in a day in the life of a fasting Muslim. Uh,
7: my name is Yusuf Mohsen. I'm a senior at UNC. And I'm majoring in religious studies. Well, Ramadan to me, it's a little more than just a cultural event. Uh, even though that's, that's a lot of it. I see it as an opportunity to... To build a closer relationship with God, especially in the West, you don't get a, uh, an opportunity like Ramadan to be able to get closer with with the community members, you know, and, and in turn, you know, get close with God. Because normally we, at most, we probably, you know, go to the mosque once a week, you know, throughout the year. But when, when Ramadan comes around, you know, we, we usually gather much more than that and we usually gather every single night we gather break our fast we gather and it's a it's a great experience
6: it is a great experience but i also understand that every muslim may experience ramadan in a different way so what is your own experience in this month
7: well this month basically we're given a gift from god the ability to come closer to him by bringing down Certain roadblocks in order for us to uh, get closer to him. And these roadblocks, you know, I can list three of them, basically, generally. You know, one of these roadblocks, we're told in this month, and everybody knows that, the Shayatin or, you know, for lack of better translation, uh, the devils, the whisperer, Satan it's kind of like an evil conscience you know When you watch tom and jerry cartoons you see the devil on the left shoulder and the angel on the right one but basically we're told that the the devil the thing on the left shoulder is gone it's chained up for this month so that's one form that uh that's one uh roadblock that was taken away from us that brings that gives us the opportunity to put aside our desires and come closer to god second of all uh you know we're able to uh like I mentioned earlier Get get together more often With our uh, community members Our fellow Muslims And we're taught You know A very important principle In Islam Basically the Prophet Once told us That Al-mar'u uh, ala dini Basically that A person is, is On the religion Of his closest friends You know So So uh, you know, it's like it's like you're you, you're more like the people you, you you spend most of your time with, basically. And in Ramadan, we're given the opportunity to spend most of our times with other fellow Muslims doing acts of worship, basically giving us the ability to come closer to God in that sense too. And in the third sense, of course, is is uh, the lack of food that we eat uh, during the month. Now we're taught we're taught that eating less food basically kind of humbles the soul. You know, humbles. You know, minimizes the uh, the desire in a person. It's like uh, to basically give a uh, you know one of the old traditional scholars gave a comparison to a a donkey. He said Ramadan fasting is like putting more weight on a donkey. You know, it basically makes him go slower. So that's what it does basically to our desires. Eating less, you know, humbles us, slows us down, and prevents us from uh, from partaking. And acts that aren't pleasurable to God, so yeah, in those three senses you know those uh, Ramadan brings us closer to God and it's more than just a cultural event
6: so would you say there are any common goals that Muslims try to achieve during this month?
7: I think the community should uh, I think the community should set a uh, common goal to to build a closer relationship. use this month use this for the reasons that I pointed out earlier to build a closer relationship with God and uh, uh another common cultural uh thing that's done is that people who don't necessarily read the Quran throughout the year you know the the Islamic holy book the Quran they usually uh use the uh the month of Ramadan the month in which the Quran was actually revealed to read the entire Quran and it, and it's conveniently split the Quran into 30 parts so Somebody can easily read a part a day. Take 20 to 30 minutes out of their day to read a part a day, and they'll be done with it in a month. And that's another uh, kind of a short-term goal that's that's
4: made during Ramadan. Woman can a man of Allah suffer if I datum in a yam in Ukhaw. You read all law who become Yusra, you read who become Usra, while he took me, all that took a
6: biru So I understand that these verses are from the Surah in the Quran, Surah Al Baghara. But can you explain to us what it means?
4: Basically, the
7: translation of the ayah is the month of Ramadan in which was revealed the Quran, a guidance for mankind and clear proofs for the guidance and the criterion between right and wrong. So whoever of you cites the question of the first night of the month of Ramadan, uh, he must fast that month. And whoever is ill or on a journey, the same number of days which one did not fast must be made up from other days." Allah intends for you ease and He does not want to make things difficult for you. He wants that you must complete the number of days and that you must magnify Allah to say, Allahu Akbar, Allah is the greatest. And seeing the crescent of the months of Ramadan and Shawal for having guided you so that
4: you may be grateful to him. So that was a day in the
6: life of a fasting Muslim allowing us to understand the special time for billions of people around the world and also our fellow classmates on campus. I'm Selma Abdullahi with Eye the Triangle, and I hope you've had an enlightening time. <laughs>
1: Sitting here with Corey Smith, deputy sports editor from the Technician, uh, talk a little sports. I've heard rumors of a football game this weekend. Am I right?
8: Yeah, I mean, obviously this this weekend's first big game. Uh, they're playing Liberty, which is, um, as I said during the summer, I mean, I didn't even realize they had a football team before this game came up. Um, but obviously, they're you know in a, a lower league than the D one that we play in. Um, so this is it's, it's an interesting game as far as we're going to get to see what a lot of people. Uh, you know, what the team's been doing over the summer, uh, what a lot of people are capable of. Obviously, you know, this is the first game starting for Mike Glennon. Uh, we've seen just, we've seen him in, you know, flashes, seen a little bit of what he can do. Um, but we haven't actually seen what he can do with an entire summer of preparation. Um, so this is kind of a compelling thing for a lot of people to go out there and see, you know, see what he has to do. And then also, uh, one thing that I talked with you about before we got started was, um, yesterday, at the media media press conference, uh, it was announced that uh, James Washington will be the starting running back in that game to replace Mustafa Green, which a lot of people believed would be the starting running back. But you know, it wasn't set in stone. Obviously,
1: like you said, it is the first game. What have we seen from our team so far this year uh, that we can look forward to seeing in the game? And uh, you know, what have we not seen that is like going to come up? And we'll probably discuss next week.
8: Well obviously one thing that you're going to see a lot less of is uh, running out of the quarterback. Obviously, uh with Russell Wilson leaving, that was, you know, it's not to say that Mike Lennon is not a mobile quarterback. He is mobile, but the, the actual running back presence type thing that Russell Wilson brought in to, to NC State, uh will probably not be there with somebody like Mike Lennon. You're going to see a lot more of the pocket passer that, you know, a, a normal quarterback that you'd see on any given Sunday will typically do. Um, but you're going to see a lot more of him working as, with his receivers. You're going to see, probably see a lot from TJ Graham because I think they're going to really try to go out there and prove who he is, uh, as, you know, as a starting wide receiver this year. And you're going to see a lot of Jay Smith as well. He was listed as the number two wide receiver, uh, coming into this weekend. But one thing that you'll probably see a lot of, and I know this isn't something that's brought up typically, but you'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of time basically back there for, uh, for the quarterback. Because, you know, in these types of games where you're playing a lower-ranked team, you're going to see a lot slower type of gameplay out of, out of the actual, you know, the, the way that um, uh, play is going to be done. And you're going to see a lot more of, you know, going through the progressions and trying to figure out what's going on from the quarterback uh instead of you know, typically you're gonna see a lot of pressure whenever it gets to the A C C games, but right here it's gonna probably be a lot slower gameplay where he's gonna have his time back there and they've got really good offensive linemen this year. They've got five guys that came back from last year that have all started in games and these are all guys that have proven themselves on the line as well.
1: Now let's talk about the schedule uh for you know, looking past this game into the season that I've heard some you know, grumblings from behind me in class about how this season, you know, oh, schedule, it's, you know, pretty easy. What, yeah, what, yeah. what do you have to say about that?
8: Uh, well, to say that they have a cupcake schedule for the first six or seven games is is fairly easy to say. It's, uh, it is the truth. They have the third worst schedule in the entire NCAA. So to say that they have a week schedule is pretty much fact. Um, but if you look at the fact that they go through those first seven games, I think that honestly works out in our favor. Because we do have an unproven quarterback. We do have, you know, a few unproven receivers. We've seen a lot out of TJ Graham, but when I mention the name Jay Smith, not a lot of people know who that is. Uh he's caught a few passes over the past few years and he's when he came out of high school, he's a great quarter or great receiver, but he hasn't been somebody that a lot of people here on campus know. So to see something like that, you know, to see those guys be able to go through the motions over the first few weeks, and the first real big game is going to be against Cincinnati on Thursday night, and even that team in themselves is not really a great team. They lost their head coach over the past few years, and they're really just in a rebuilding stage right now. But the first test really for NC State is going to be at home against Georgia Tech. Uh, that game is going to be a big one, even though Georgia Tech is a little bit down after last year, and they've gone through some allegations that have happened over the past few months. And they've been stripped of their ACC title from 2009. But looking at that game is going to be the first game to really see where this team is at. And then, obviously, they travel down to Florida State, so. Cool. Well, uh,
1: let's wrap this up a little bit, you know. Um, but, of course, I want to give you a chance to tell us about a new thing that's happening here at KNC tomorrow night. Uh 7 to p.m.
8: Yeah, working on the promos for it still, so I know that a lot of people haven't really heard about it, but uh, tomorrow night we're going to be doing a little bit more of this and a little more interesting, I'm sure. Uh, it's not going to be just us talking, but uh, tomorrow night we have the Pulse of the Pack from 7 to 8 every Wednesday night on WKNC. So that'll feature me and another former sports editor. His name is Tyler Everett. It, we're both going to be working on that show, and we're going to have a few guest hosts every week. And we're also going to have tomorrow night—I'm about to actually sit down and talk with her in just a little while—is Kim Kern, who's our uh, women's soccer goalie. And we're also—I'm going in tomorrow morning to go talk with our new starting running back, James Washington. So we'll we'll have interviews from both of those on the show as well.
1: Cool. So tune in tomorrow night for Pulse of the Pack, only here on WKNC. And thanks so much for coming in, Corey. Talk about sports. All right. Thanks, man. Now we're going to try something we haven't done before on Eye in the Triangle. We're going to talk about the architectural history of NC State. John Morris, a contributor to the blog Goodnight Raleigh and an alumni, is here with me in the studio to discuss a historically significant building on campus. We wanted to choose a building that was instantly recognizable to start this new segment, and Harrelson Hall seemed to fit the bill perfectly. John, it just seems like one of those buildings that everyone has something to say about it
9: yeah absolutely it's uh there's a lot of mysticism i guess you could call that involved with Harrison hall i heard several things whenever i was in school here of various things from uh it's either sinking it's sinking a little bit each year and that there are problems with there or that i think one of the most interesting uh myths i heard about it was that it was designed by a a school of design a former school design student who proposed it as his senior design project and got a flunking grade later as a successful architect he uh had offered NC State a bunch of money and the condition that they would take the money was if they had implemented his designs for the the round uh, building known as Harrelson Hall. That's also incorrect. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting sort of stories that get circulated from year to year about how it came about.
1: So let's start at the very beginning. Harrelson Hall is a giant circular building that used to be raised one story off the brickyard um, across from the library in front of Cox Hall, but... Now they have recently relocated the bookstore to the basement, so uh, it is filled in. But it's a big circular building that doesn't have a whole lot of space to wiggle around in. Yeah, I
9: think I think my biggest gripe or the thing that that I dislike the most about it is the lack of windows. All the classrooms are all these sort of tomb-like things that are that sort of seem strange, and you can never get a good view of the the front. It, it just it's one of those things that might might have looked good on paper, but you know when you're when you're in it, you you see that it obviously doesn't work. Uh, there's a lot of other problems too. Uh, you know the the spiral. You know trying to get where you're, uh, it's really difficult to try and get where you're going because of the long spiral up. It's it just seems to take forever, and it's really hard to find your way around. It's just not. Wasn't really executed from from top to bottom.
1: Right, actually, uh, I think most of the students that go up in the building uh, walk upstairs, located on the outside, and that's actually the fire escape, if I'm not mistaken. Correct.
9: Yeah, right, right. There's there, there's a lot of a lot of scary things, and and think about people with uh, disabilities. You know, I don't know how how anyone in a wheelchair, if they if they ever make it all the way up to the top, that's got to be quite a quite a trek. So there there are a lot of problems, not just you know. Uh, from, for regular students, but f- for those who are disabled, too, it's a, it's a nightmare.
1: Right, so we've dispelled some rumors. Now give us the truth.
9: Uh, so it was built in 1960, 1961 by Terry Wog. He was uh, a school design professor here at NC State. He was part of the first wave of architecture professors that came to establish the new uh, school design uh, here, and he later served as the university planner. Uh, it was before this time that he had designed Harrelson Hall, but it was it was a pretty big deal when it was built because it was the first round building in Raleigh, and it was the first uh, round or cylindrical building on a college campus. So it was a couple of interesting feats in that in that regard, uh, mainly due to its shape, uh, and not to mention, it just kind of looks interesting. It looks like a big spaceship landing in the middle of the brickyard. So it's something that something everyone knows about, and everyone usually has some sort of opinion on one way or another usually negative
1: i've sat in a classroom before and looked straight ahead and could not see the board right
9: there's never a good vantage point in any of those in any of those rooms
1: well this is a good way to start our series because we picked like the most universally commented on i guess building because some people do like it yeah and what i found though most of the people that i know that
9: like it are are people like myself who who knew about it made one to school but they're not currently students and so they have this kind of fond memory of looking at it from a distance although they may realize how much it sucked at the time they kind of like its unique appearance from the outside so they kind of forget the the negative aspects that they might have encountered whenever whenever they were students so uh, it's definitely definitely something neat and interesting and it's also you know you have to realize 50 years ago this was a huge statement you know for a a land-grant university in the south I mean it's a it was a pretty big deal to do something this radical and this different in a you know a pretty small uh, campus in a pretty small town. So it was a it was a big deal back then.
1: No, I think if I if I have heard correctly, Harrelson has like taught more students than any other building like in the United States.
9: Wow, I wouldn't doubt it. I know that I saw a fact somewhere. I want to say it was in the Technician uh, recently that. Eighty uh, four, eighty five percent of students had had gone taken classes in Harrelson Hall, and I believe it. I mean, that's where the you know the core core ones used to be. I think now it's more of a um, sort of a shuffle space where they sort of put temporary. I don't think there's any permanent uh, schools there, but
1: but if you ever get to the top, there's a really cool uh, place at the very top of the building. There's these circular windows in the ceiling, and and actually you can go up there and lounge. It's, right, uh, it's right. a lounge now, so it's the only place in Harrelson that you can get, like, full sunlight, and it's a really cool space. So if anybody's on NC State's campus, they should check it out. Anyway, John, thanks for joining us. Sure. Uh, I hope this is going to be a successful little segment. Yeah, we'll see absolutely. how it goes. All right, thanks, Chris. Uh, all right, and what are we going to do next time? Let's uh...
9: Maybe Park Shops.
1: Park There's... Shops would be a good one. All yeah, right.
9: That was a successful renovation. It's in, uh, one of the older buildings on campus. We'll take a look at Park Shops.
1: All right, Park Shops next time on uh, Brick by Brick, right here on Island the Triangle. Dave and Nick are back, and better than ever, with This Week in History. So get ready for today's dose of historical hilarity, which starts right now. Hello, and welcome to This Week
5: in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1774, the First Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They convened to address the oppressive actions of Britain's Parliament and appealed to King George III for the revocation of the coercive or intolerable acts. In 1803, Lewis and Clark began their journey to explore the Louisiana Purchase. They would end up covering about 8,000 miles over the course of their 28-month expedition. Though they didn't find a Northwest Passage, they helped chart a vast territory including parts of what is now Kansas, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon. Back in 1838, Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery. Douglass would go on to be an instrumental figure in the abolitionist movement, largely thanks to his oratory skills. In 1886, a magnitude 7.3 earthquake struck Charleston, South Carolina. 100 people died, and the city suffered $150 million worth of damage in today's money. In 1901, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt delivered his famous quote, Speak softly and carry a big stick, during a speech in Minnesota. Historians claim that this was a metaphor for his opinion about the United States' foreign policy. But what he meant, of course, was that the residents of Minnesota should keep quiet while gathering firewood. That's an astute observation, Nick. Thanks, Dave. Back in 1920, the first radio news program was broadcasted by 8MK out of Detroit, Michigan. In 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, which prompted France and Britain to declare war on Germany. This conflict drew in many more countries and developed into World War II shortly thereafter. In 1950, the Beetle Bailey comic strip was first published. The original author, Mort Walker, is still writing for the strip to this day. This week in 1967, Sweden officially made the change from driving on the left side of the street to driving on the right side. The change took place at 5 a.m. on Sunday, September 3rd, and good for them. In 1972, the Palestinian terrorist group Black September took hold of 11 Israeli athletes during the Munich Olympic Games. All 11 athletes died and five Black September members were killed during an attempted rescue of the hostages. In 1974, the SR-71 Blackbird set the current record flight time between New York and London, making the flight in just under two hours. On a side note, should a missile have been launched at the Blackbird, its standard evasive action was simply to accelerate and outrun the missile. That must be a fast jet, Dave. That it is, Nick. Back in 1984, Space Shuttle Discovery made its maiden flight into space to launch three satellites— just this past February, Discovery made its final voyage to the International Space Station and will be on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. Larry Page and Sergey Brin, two students at Stanford University, co-founded Google in 1998. The company is currently valued at $60 billion and will one day own the world. Agreed. Let's do birthdays. All right. In 1735, composer Johann Christian Bach was born. He is commonly known as the English Bach and is noted for influencing Mozart. In 1874, outlaw Jesse James was born. He is known for his lawlessness and picture-perfect portrayal of the Wild West villain. In 1951, actor Michael Keaton was born, born to play Batman. Actor Richard Gere was born this week in 1949. He's known for his role in an officer and a gentleman, but you might not know that he's a descendant of Mayflower Pilgrims. He also played the lead male role in *Knights in Rodanthe, which was set in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. In 1945, Van Morrison was born. He is best known for his hit single, Brown-Eyed Girl. Keanu Reeves was born in 1964 and is famous for his roles in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Speed, and the Matrix series. In 1968, Mike Piazza was born. He is a 12-time All-Star and currently holds the record for the most home run hits by a catcher. Beyoncé Knowles was born this week in 1981. She was originally in Destiny's Child, but has launched a very successful solo career with her single, Single Ladies, Crazy in Love. Nick, Nick, I'm going to let you finish, but I have to remind you that Beyoncé had one of the best videos of all time. In 1986, Sean White was born. He is famous for his extreme talent in snowboarding and skateboarding, having won two Olympic gold medals. He even invented his own trick, dubbed the Double McTwist. And that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening. And keep it historical, Raleigh.
1: Well, it looks like I in the Triangle is going to run a little short today. I know all you listeners are very disappointed. I would like to thank our contributors Nick, Dave, Jake, Selma, Katie, and Matt. And, of course, I want to thank you, the listener. If you want to get in touch with our show, please email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org or call us at 515-2401. We'll be back next week with interviews, news, sports, weather, and more. So until then, on behalf of everyone here at On the Triangle, thanks and good night.
5: You're listening to WKNC 88.1 FM, now broadcasting at 25 million milliwatts. (laughs)